Tonight we have the privilege of starting uh, my favorite Old Testament book, the book of Isaiah. And when I say it's my favorite, um, it really is my favorite. Actually, all of them are my favorites, favorites. But this one is my actual singular favorite. And the reason it is my favorite is because many people will question the validity of whether we have what we call the autographs or the originals. And while we do not have an autograph or the original of the book of Isaiah, we do have a copy of it that is older than Jesus when he was on this earth. And that makes it extremely important for our faith. And so I want to show you a little video, and then we'll do the introduction to the book of Isaiah. Let's roll that film. Amen and amen. The reason I'm showing you that is for this. When you read your English Bible, that scroll, because it contains nearly every single word, and the only reason we can't say it contains every single word is there are about 19 words that we know of on one page and 64 words on three other pages that are missing. But we have other pieces that have those words on them. So when we say exact, it's exact. It is the exact same as the Masoretic text from which we got the Latin Vulgate, from which we got the English. So when you read the book of Isaiah, we have a copy that's been dated to at a minimum 212 years, a maximum about 238, 238 B.C. So we have a copy of the book of Isaiah that is older than when Jesus set foot on this earth. So every single piece of prophetic evidence that we're going to uncover as we travel through these 66 books, these 66 chapters, we have a copy of it that's older than when Jesus walked on the earth. So it was written before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords ever set foot. Whether it's dated back to the time of Isaiah or not, we have a copy that is older than when Jesus was on the earth. So every detail, every single thing that is said about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords in the book of Isaiah can be verified by an ancient text. So when we get to the prophecy of the virgin who will bring forth a son, when we get to the prophecy that the Messiah would be beaten that the Messiah would be resurrected. When we read those words in our English Bible, 
we can look at them in the original text and say that is exactly what the Bible says. And so get ready for a wonderful time in a wonderful book. And let's pray and ask God to speak to us. Father, thank you for the power and the majesty of your living word. It is exactly as the writer of Hebrews said. It's living and powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, and rightly divides between soul and spirit, joint and marrow. And so, Lord, have your living word speak to us. Would be encouraged and built up in our faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to do an introduction to this amazing book. Dr. Harry Ironsides, when he wrote his commentary on this book, he called it the Bible in miniature. And when you look at the Dead Sea Scroll text, there are actually 54 panels on parchment, sheepskin parchment. Um, But all 66 chapters of the book of Isaiah are on that scroll, a single scroll. Uh, It's a little over 55 feet long. If you were to unroll it, it would take about... uh, two-thirds of the front of the stage here if we were to roll it out it's very fragile it's an ancient document but as we read the book of isaiah an interesting thing happens because we find uh, in the first 39 chapters we get the historical account of what transpired uh, during the times that this book was written by the prophet isaiah and so we have a very clear picture of the history of that transpired, and that is the history of faith condensed down into those chapters. And as we would then move on to the 27 next chapters, and if you know your Bible, your Bible has exactly 39 chapters in the Old Testament, 39 books in the Old Testament, and 27 books in the New. And so the chapter and verse designations, though they were added much later, do break down in a way that uh, we get all the way through the history of of how the Lord worked in the children of Israel, how he brought about salvation, the entrance of the Messiah, the life that Christ brings, that he would be the light of the world. All these things are found in the book of Isaiah. And so it's an incredible uh, bolster to our faith. Isaiah was what we would call the classic prophet. And when we say classic, that means he is the prime example of an Old Testament prophet. And he prophesied in several different ways. And so whenever you see the word prophet, the Hebrew word nabai, it carried several connotations, one of which was to foretell future events. That's really important with regard to the Messiah because it helps us validate what the Bible says as being true. But he was also able to speak into the culture at the time. And so this is also very, very important Because the Bible that we read today helps us speak into the culture and in our own particular time. And it also did the same thing then with Isaiah. We we see a picture of a nation that was wicked, a nation that had turned away from the Lord. And, And so as he began to speak, he spoke forth things that were true. They they were directly from God. And God, as he himself has decided what a prophet is supposed to be, one of the things that I can tell you today is when someone comes to you and says they're a prophet, you can, you can say, well, can you pass the test of a prophet? The test of a prophet is actually given to us in the book of Deuteronomy. There in chapter 18, it begins in verse 17. It says, the Lord said to me, what they have spoken is good. 
And I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. Moses is writing this. And I will put my words in his mouth. In other words, God said, I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak them, all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. It's really important that we understand that prophets only speak for the Lord. They never speak for themselves. They speak directly those things which are spoken to them. Verse 20. But the prophet which presumes to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So it's very dangerous to be pronounced a prophet. Amen? And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? Here comes the biggest dumb moment in all of the Old Testament. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the things which does not happen or come that thing does not happen or come to pass that is the thing which the lord has not spoken in other words if it isn't true it's not true and the prophet has spoken presumptuously and you shall not be afraid of him so god was very specific about the office of prophet isaiah was a prophet extraordinaire the things that he spoke about messiah not only came true Uh, But as we see them today, of the 27 quotations in the New Testament by people like Jesus and the Apostle Paul, uh, of the 37, 27 are from the book of Isaiah. It contains more prophetic information about the days that still lie ahead and the life of Messiah than any other book in the Old Testament. You can actually see the plan of salvation in the, book, in the book of Isaiah. It contains dozens of very specific pieces of information about the Messiah, about what he will do, how he will be treated, what, what will be his life while he's here, the role that he will play. All of those things are contained in this book. And so of the great men of the Old Testament, they really weren't the kings, they really weren't the priests, they were the prophets of God. They were the ones that spoke for the Lord during that time of man's history before Jesus came. The prophet simply defined is a man who speaks on behalf of God. And why this is important is because that role, while the office doesn't translate into the New Testament times, the role does. And so I always tell people, because people say, well, you know, it's just like you knew what God was speaking to me. Here's how I knew. When I repeat back to you what the word of God says, in that sense, I'm speaking prophetically into your life because God actually said those things. And so anytime you repeat the word of the Lord to someone, when you accurately give the truth of what the Bible contains, you can speak prophetically while not being a prophet yourself. And so... We, we need to kind of differentiate a little bit because some people will come to you and say, well, I'm prophet so-and-so. <clears throat> you need to run. <laughs> Just grab your stuff, head somewhere else because those messengers that God sends were holy men of God, as Second Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, and they spoke as they were moved by God. 
God has not called any new prophets into existence. There is no need for them. Scripture is complete. The plan of salvation is complete. The plan for the end times is complete. All we're waiting for is the fulfillment of all of it. And there's still some to be fulfilled, amen? One day the church is going to hear that trumpet sound and the dead in Christ are going to be raised and we who are alive and remain are going to meet the king in the air, amen? That would be a great day. It can happen tonight. That would be fine. <laughs> there are a couple of additional words that are used to define someone who does this. And they're, they're normally given to things like seeing supernatural visions. We would call them seers or messengers. Um, but the reason that that isn't horribly important in the case of Isaiah is Isaiah was actually a Nabai. He was a prophet. And so he wasn't just seeing visions, though he probably did. And he wasn't just being a messenger, though he absolutely was. He was the true prophet of God. And so he worked under the Holy Spirit's influence. Everything he said to the children of Israel had importance. And as we see his life unfold, we're going to see a man that paid a very, very high cost for speaking forth what God had said to him. It will actually cost him his life. The Holy Spirit influenced him in a a way that I don't think there's anyone else in the Old Testament that we could say, you know, that person was spoken to in a greater way than the prophet Isaiah. Even Moses, to some degree, uh, though though he had a different role, uh, and he himself was considered a prophet, I think even Moses would have to say, you know, Isaiah spoke a greater word when it comes to Messiah than, than, than Moses did. But we also have to acknowledge that Satan has his ways and he continues to speak and tries to convince us that there are prophets in the world today. And so all you have to do is look at your Bible and take someone to the back of your Bible to the very last page of the New Testament and read what happens to someone who claims to prophesy in the Lord or to add to the word of the Lord. Uh, Let that person be accursed. And so Isaiah is unique, and I pray that as we move through this incredible book, that that we'll recognize that it was a special time, it was a special purpose, a wonderful reason, and Isaiah completed that task. Um, In your Bible, we will see all kinds of different characteristics, and I've kind of picked out the, the nine top characteristics of the prophet the first of them is that they were actually sent by god and so you will see that phrase thus says the lord frequently and often it's because god specifically spoke something to them the content of their message was actually proof that they were inspired of the lord and so when they said that it would then be viewed in that role of the prophet and then be judged by whether it came true or not Uh, Their message was very often related to the history of the people to whom they were prophesying. So in this case, we should be able to go back through the history of four kings very specifically. Uh, And the reason that we can do that is that your Bible also records the history of those four kings, as does an awful lot of extra-biblical writing. And so verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. And so we ought to be able to look at world history, 
pick out these specific four kings of Judah. And remember that when you're talking about what we would call Israel or the Jewish people, Israel was actually at that point in time defined as the ten tribes that were in the north. In the south, Judah and Benjamin resided. And so Judah and Benjamin went by the collective name of Judah. And along with them were the priests that served in the temple. They were of Levi. Levi had no inheritance in the land. If you look at the division of the land that you see in the book of Joshua, you'll find out they didn't get to inherit any land. And so you have 10 tribes in the north, two in the south, making up the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. And so here, here comes this prophet, and he's going to speak into these, the lives of these kings uh, that, that were the rulers of Judah at that time. And, and we can go back very, very easily. Uh, if you travel with us, we'll be announcing our 2020 trip to Israel here fairly shortly. We actually have our tour guide coming out uh, this coming Sunday. He's going to bring out some final preparations for that. Uh, but one of the things that we go through when we're in Jerusalem as we actually go through the tunnel that great King Hezekiah dug to provide water from the springs of Gihon into the city so it was a defensible city. And so we, we can go visit the history of the great King Hezekiah. And so when I look at my history and I look at what Isaiah says and I realize that the messianic portions of these things have largely been fulfilled. Some of them awaiting the very last days have not yet, but they shall. I have tremendous confidence in the Bible that I hold in my hand. That God authored it. it. Didn't come from man. And so those things which we see from God as he speaks to us, God works in your life by what we would call generally progressive revelation. Now when you aren't a believer god isn't going to dump on you all of the various facets of a sanctified life if he did you just say i'm not doing that so he reveals to you your basic sinfulness generally speaking and then he'll show you some specific things tells you the plan of salvation tells you what happens when you give your life to the lord the lord reveals things the prophets always did this they didn't jump straight to if you don't turn right now you're going to die but they very often would say, look, we're going down the wrong path. And so each message would build on another. And this is very true here in the book of Isaiah. We'll also see that there are absolute predictions about the future. And this is one of the great things uh, about all of the prophetic books, but very specifically the book of Isaiah. Because you can look at those things and go, okay, exactly what happened during that time? Was it fulfilled? And because we can look at the history of the children of Israel very specifically Judah and its kings, we can say those predictions which were announced to come true at that point in time, like the fall of Assyria, actually happened. And we'll dig into a little bit of that in just a bit. There were times that God gave conditional promises or predictions through the prophets. And this is, this is the way you can understand those conditional things. God says, I will do this if you will do that. In other words, if you will turn from your evil, if you will repent from your evil ways, then I will bless you. And so there were conditional promises given, but there were also unconditional promises given to them. And so when you look at the Bible, you have to be very careful to look at it in context because sometimes people confuse conditional things with unconditional things 
and unconditional things with conditional things, and you have to understand the context of it. The Bible gives us enough information that we can understand those things fairly easily. The Bible includes in its prophetic word uh, both literal and figurative language, and we're going to get to one of those uh, fairly shortly in chapter 7. It's very, very clear uh, what's going to happen there. But in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. And you immediately go, "Eh, you know, I know a little bit about biology, and that doesn't work very well. And so what's being said there? Well, it's being said there's going to be a woman that's going to give birth and it's not going to be a natural birth because it seems to be the parts are reversed here. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's going to point us actually to chapter 7 in the book of Isaiah. And so as we get to chapter 7, we'll see the virgin-born son of God predicted by the prophet Isaiah. A few more of those characteristics basically every bit of prophecy is centered on the fact that God loves you. Amen? He loves us so much that he tells us stuff in advance so that we can trust what he's saying. And, and so as you, as you look at the word of God, you have to start at the right place. You know, I, I talk to people all the time that have their theology hung on the wrong thing. It's like God is sovereign, God is majestic, God is holy, and those things are all true, by the way. But everyone's theology ought to hang on the one thing that the Bible tells us universally about God. God loves us. He absolutely loves us. And so you can expect to see uh, the love of God very freely flowing. God's love is as it will be centered in Jesus Christ. Because the whole purpose of God sending his son is that the world through him would be saved. Amen? So if, if you take a book that's as large as the book of Isaiah and you make Jesus a centerpiece of it and, and then Jesus comes on the scene and does exactly the things that the prophet Isaiah said he would and Isaiah is writing in 686 BC, Jesus comes and completes those things from 1 AD to 32 AD, you're going to kind of go, wow, Jesus must really love me. Because he told me what he was going to do before he did it. He wants me to know those things are true. We know the love of God because God told us what he was going to do with Messiah before Messiah ever did it. Another thing that's very important for us is when we look at the New Testament and how the New Testament apostles applied the Old Testament prophetic word, it gives us an understanding of what they believed those things said. So when you find the Apostle Paul quoting the prophet Isaiah, when you find Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah, you can understand that Jesus believed the prophet Isaiah wrote the truth. And by the way, for those of you that are in the conspiracy theory mode, and you happen to have bought the lie that there were three Isaiahs, Jesus thought there was one because he quoted from all three parts that are attributed to the different Isaiahs and he just said it was of, of Isaiah the prophet. He didn't say the prophet's Isaiah. He said the singular prophet Isaiah and he quoted from all three sections. So God wants us to understand that these words were written to build up our faith. When you look at the prophetic word, 
your starting point is that it is true literally, unless you have some reason to take it figuratively. When, when the word of God speaks, it speaks generally in a literal sense unless it gives us the context and a reason to believe that there's something figurative in it. And so the fulfillment of these predictions that we'll see made by the prophets, specifically Isaiah, I always start at the literal place. I'll move to an allegorical or something, some other meaning when I have reason to know that it was not meant to be taken that way. But it's very rare, actually, that God isn't trying to give us specific information. It'd be kind of foolish for God to write a book that was just completely allegorical, wouldn't it? I'm not sure you could actually call it truth if it was just allegory and it meant something to each generation differently. How how is it then truth? It would be a sliding scale that moves when you move. And so God generally uh, spoke through the prophets in a literal way. As you begin to look at the prophets, uh, there's an interesting collection of them. Uh, There are 16 that wrote books, and there are an additional 38 like Enoch and Noah, who were simply oral prophets. They, they spoke things for God, but those things were not actually recorded in what we would call a book of the Bible. And so they were divided up based on not their importance, but basically just on the size, not the content, but basically the amount uh, of the work. So you have four major prophets, uh, and, and then you have 12 that were we would call minor prophets. You have those that Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, and then the rest of the minor prophets. And those minor prophets are important, so don't dismiss them. Um, we're actually uh, covering one of them right now, uh, or we're going to be covering one of them when we get done with the end of Daniel. We'll go on to Hosea and Amos and Obadiah and Jonah, those prophets. But we're in Daniel on Sunday nights, we're here in Isaiah, and so we're going to get a good chunk of the writing uh, of the prophets themselves. The man Isaiah, let's get to know him a little bit. You know, when you think about guys getting thrown into a crazy situation, the children of Israel were pretty much famous. If there's famous for one thing, they were famous for not doing what God told them to do. That's kind of their history. It's like you read the book of Judges and everyone did that which was right in their own eyes. And they would have a good king followed by an evil king. And actually, Hezekiah is probably the greatest king, in my humble opinion, uh, that we actually know, know most of his works. Hezekiah would, would certainly be at the top of the list, maybe with King David. And yet his son, Manasseh, was one of the most evil kings. And, and so you had this, this constant ebb and flow. And so I, Isaiah is thrust into this situation to where you have four kings. And so you can imagine... Uh, the, the period of time that he writes in, probably some 62 years. Now, I, I've been in ministry over 30 years. I can't imagine being a prophet for 62 years where every single thing you say is coming directly from God to the people and the people don't want to hear it. You know, very often I sit down in counseling sessions and I have to, okay, this is what the Bible says. I'm going to speak prophetically to you because here's what God said about it. And so in that sense, here's the word that comes from the Lord. And I'll give them some uh, piece of information that the Bible says about the situation. People don't like that. Now imagine that you've been called to a nation. 
You know, can you imagine every day you're tweeting something about, you know, how far off the nation is from God? You know, it, it, it would just be mind-boggling the amount of scrutiny that that person would be under. But Isaiah uh, spent at least 62, I personally believe, 64 years prophesying uh, over Israel. Winston Churchill was once asked to give the qualifications of a person who's needed, uh, that a person needed to be in public office, specifically politics. He said this, he says, the ability to foretell what's going to happen tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, and then to have the ability afterward to explain why it didn't happen. That's exactly the opposite of the prophet Isaiah. Not one word could he speak that did not come true. Every single thing he said. That's why that passage in Deuteronomy is so important. You, you can't explain away, well, you know, I guess I didn't hear from the Lord. No, you either are a prophet or not a prophet. And so he spent his whole life speaking in, in that very narrow window of thus says the Lord. And so when we look at his name, it gives us a little clue into what he's going to bring forth for us. His name simply means salvation is of the Lord. It's what Isaiah means. And that's the message he brings. That God is going to bring salvation. And because of that, you would kind of expect the, the Lord to give us a, a pretty clear picture of those things. And so he did. And in fact, as we go through, uh, we're going to see five very specific acts of deliverance that are going to happen during the time that Isaiah prophesies. Uh, the first and foremost, they're going to be invaded by Assyria. And we'll give you a little history of a very short, brief history in just a few minutes of the, of the Assyrian people. The Assyrian people were probably the most violent of all the ancient peoples of the Middle East. They did some of the most horrific things that you could possibly imagine. They ruled literally by fear. And so each one of their kings tried to outdo the other. But Isaiah's going to speak, the Assyrians are nothing. Now bear in mind that the capital city of Jerusalem at the time that Isaiah is there is probably 24 acres. It's about five times the size of our church property. That's it. And if you were to include the Hamilton lot, the, this lot and the Hamilton lot were about half the size of the ancient city of Jerusalem. And inside of that ancient city of Jerusalem are a bunch of agrarian farmers and sheep herders and a bunch of priests who are ministering in the temple. And Isaiah says, don't fear the mighty Assyrians. The Assyrians ruled from modern-day Iran all the way to the Mediterranean coast and down to Egypt. And here comes Isaiah and says, I don't need to worry about it. We got this. Sure, it looks grim. We've got less than 30 acres of defensible space, but it's going to work out okay. God's going to deliver them. He will then prophesy that the next kingdom, which we're studying in the book of Daniel, the Babylonians, will suffer the same fate. Now again, keep in mind, 
Here's this little tiny hilltop. When you travel to Israel, you, you, you learn something very quick. The city of Jerusalem is tiny. Even today, it's not a large city. That's a lot of people, about 800,000 people in Jerusalem. But if you look at the old ancient city, and we got a couple of quarterbacks in the NFL could probably throw a pass over the short distance. You know, it, it's not very wide. Not very long. The city was dinky. Chapter 40, he's going to prophesy that the Babylonians will be defeated. He will then talk about the future deliverance of the entirety of the Jewish people. And by the way, that's born, that's born out as well in the book of Revelation. The book of Romans, when Paul says one day all Israel will be saved, Isaiah agreed with him. Isaiah said the people will be set free. He prophesied the deliverance of you and I in chapter 53. That Messiah would come. The chastisement for our peace would be upon him. By his stripes we would be healed. That's, that's Isaiah speaking of Messiah. Mind-boggling. You know the crazy thing is? We can look at the history of the Assyrians. They chronicled their battles well, including wall panels that have pictures of the kings of Judah with shackles around their necks naming who they are and guess what they're the same ones in the book of Isaiah so, so when we look at this book we see that God says look I'm going to deliver you and by the time we get to the end of it we're going to find that God is not only going to deliver Israel all the way through time but he is one day going to deliver the entire world from the bondage of sin it's all here in this book Isaiah has a wife and a couple of sons. And as you look at their, their family, those two sons become uh, an interesting picture of the history of the children of Israel. Shir Jashub means a remnant shall return, and we're going to see, we're going to meet both of them in chapter 7. But can you imagine having part of your family as a remnant will return and then think about the history of the children of Israel? A remnant will return and keeps returning. And in 1948, they returned one last time to the land. And so as we look at the prophetic portions that speak of the future uh, dealings of God with the children of Israel, I think we're right on the cusp of seeing the very final steps take, take, take place. We're alive in that day and time that I think are the very last days. Russia is furious right now that we have not moved all of our troops out of Syria. You have Turkey moving in. You have Iran and Iraq all joining together. You have this crazy thing that Isaiah prophesies that interestingly enough that Arabia does not join with those that are fighting against Israel in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that Sheba and Dedan, the northern part uh, of what we would call North Africa doesn't get engaged. They actually sit it out, and that's exactly what the Saudis are doing right now. It's an interesting book when you start to look at world history. As you think about the history, we're going to meet King Uzziah. He's going to die in chapter 6, which we know the date of that perfectly it was 739 bc 
And so Isaiah ministers through the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah after Uzziah dies. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're told that there's at least one of the prophets that's sawn in two. Um, I happen to believe it's Isaiah because that is chronicled uh, for us in some extra biblical writings. You're going to discover that there's a man that is absolutely as courageous as you can possibly imagine. The guy walks out of his hovel every day to the threat of death and he still keeps speaking the message that God gives him. He's going to see God's son and speak of God's son. He's, he's going to see God's glory and speak of God's glory. He's going to speak God's message to the people and they aren't going to want to hear it. Isaiah was a man who deeply loved his nation. Isaiah was a man who deeply loved his nation. As flawed and as messed up as his nation was. He loved Judah. He loved Israel. Israel is going to end up in captivity. The ten northern tribes, the Assyrians, are going to wipe out. Take them into captivity. He's going to use the phrase, my people, 26 times in this book. He's not going to put himself outside of the, of the people. He says, these are my people. I'm speaking to my people. He would warn of the dangers of making allegiances and alliances with foreign kings, trusting in horses and chariots and politics instead of the true and the living God. That's not a popular message. It's not a popular message today. It's one of the things that we face as a church in our world. When we stand up for what God's word says, we are not only ridiculed, we're penalized for it. Now imagine that that penalty could have been death. Going against foreign policy in our day and time might get you put in prison, but back then it'd get you killed. We're going to see that he was a man that hated, absolutely loathed sin in his own life and in the life of his people. He's going to tell us in chapter 31, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help. Woe to those who go to the world. Woe to those who go to the powers of this world for their help. And the reason that we know what he was talking about is he says, and do not go to the Holy One of Israel first. It's a word, it's a warning for us in our day and time. He was absolutely unafraid to denounce kings and priests. He didn't care who was wrong. He just knew if God said something about the matter, that was his opinion. And so I think we can gain some strength in our own walks with the Lord when we read what the prophet Isaiah had to say. He was willing to say whatever God said, whenever God said it. He was never moved. He didn't waver. There was never a time in the prophet Isaiah's life where he despaired to the point that he was going to give up. For three years, we're going to find in chapter 20, that, that he, he goes out into the streets in a loincloth, fully humiliated to dramatize the victory of Assyria over Egypt. And, and in doing that, he actually gets the nation's attention. You know, sometimes we fight long battles, don't we? We're going through some 
tremendously difficult battles culturally in our country. I, I know Connie and I personally started, started getting involved in um, trying to do something about the tragedy of what I think is best described as the American Holocaust abortion. Over 30 years ago, we're still fighting that same battle today. That's an Isaiah view. It's like it's worth it. God has an opinion on the life of every child. Whether we see them as wanted or unwanted or a problem or necessary or unnecessary or an inconvenience, whether we use phrases like it's my body, doesn't change God's opinion. God hates hands that are swift to shed innocent blood, period. End of conversation. He also loves those that are engaged in those things which might put you into that place. And so I don't want to cause anyone to to fall away from the grace of God here. But God has an opinion about these things. And Isaiah was willing to speak the same message over and over and over as many times as it needed to be said. He was willing to pay with his life if necessary. He was a big picture guy in that sense. And the big picture in Isaiah is truly a gigantic picture. He he was brilliant in communicating the truth of God. And we're going to see him use all kinds of word pictures and stories. He's going to compare the nation. We're going to see that immediately next time as a diseased body. I have personally used that analogy myself. People that don't know they're infected. A harlot, a useless vineyard, a bulging wall that's about to fall down, a woman that's in labor. He's going to liken Assyria to a raging river, a swarm of bees, a lion, an axe about ready to come to the root of the tree. You know, so he knows how to get people's attention. He would have been good as a, as a one-man drama. It seems as though people actually came out to see what Isaiah was going to say every day. It's like they didn't have YouTube. So let's go see what Isaiah is going to do today. Go out and watch this crazy guy. But he was just crazy in love with God and willing to say whatever God said. By the way, Jesus kind of did the same thing. That's why he spoke in parables. They they couldn't handle the truth in its raw form, so he spoke to the people in parables. He said, seeing they'll see with their own eyes, they won't see with spiritual eyes, so I, I need to tell them something so that they can understand it from my perspective and not theirs. And so as Isaiah begins to prophesy, he prophesies during the reign of King Uzziah, which is also Azariah, as you look in your Bible, um, if you read Second Kings, uh, actually you can really begin in First Kings, but Second Kings covers the, the bulk of it. They're in Second Kings 16 through 20, and then Second Chronicles 28 to 32. You'll find these kings and all of the things that happened during their reign. And then what happens is you can kind of look and see: is there any archaeological evidence for these kings existing? Interestingly enough, these are the kings that got preserved. 
And so when we travel, it's, it's amazing. You're walking up and go, well, King Jeroboam built this right after Ahaz kicked him out. You know, it's like, it's like oh, cool. So we know these were the actual kings of Israel. The kings of Judah. Jotham was actually a co-regent. Uzziah was a great king. His father was actually assassinated in, six, in 767. And so Uzziah became the sole ruler when he was still a teenager. Matter of fact, I think he was 16, I believe, when he came to, when he came into power. But ultimately, he falls into some of the same traps that many politicians fall into. He tries to make good with evil, and ultimately, he gets smitten with leprosy. And it was when King Uzziah died, a good king, that Isaiah saw the Lord. The next one, Jotham, was actually co-regent during his father. When he became a leper, Jotham began to rule in this place before he was even dead. He reigns over the Jewish people in Judah for some 20 years, and he finally succumbs. After that, this tremendously wicked king, Ahaz, who forges alliances with everybody. And if there was ever a classic case of someone who compromised in the wrong way, with anyone and everyone, it was Ahaz. And at that time, Egypt was threatening from the south. Assyria had already come from the north. Babylon was rising in the east. And so he says, well, the best thing we can do is we'll just make peace with the devil. We'll we'll just give in to everybody. And it ends up nearly costing the Jewish people their existence. And after him, King Hezekiah... He reigns for 42 years. Probably the greatest, the greatest of all of the kings, and certainly in longevity, that was true. And so the, the ministry portion um, of, Isaiah's, of Isaiah's life, spanning at least 50 years, but most likely 64 years. The dangers, interestingly enough, were not the dangers on the outside. And this is probably a word for us as we begin this journey through the book of Isaiah. As we read the book of Isaiah, you can have kind of one of two views. One of it, it's like it was an ancient writing. It was true. It's already been fulfilled. Who cares? The other is, what's God speaking to me today through the prophet Isaiah? Because the problems that they faced were actually not the external ones. It was not Assyria. It was not Babylon that was rising. It was not the Egyptians in the south. The problems they were facing were in their own hearts. And that's the same problems that we have today. Our problems are largely internal. And this whole story, as it's revealed through Isaiah, really is a man who's speaking in an age where people are completely inattentive to the voice of God. And I've been around long enough to tell you that people are getting less and less attentive to the voice of God. They're getting more and more attentive to everything but the voice of God. And that's not everyone everywhere, but in a general sense, even the church is fleeing the word of God. The church is walking away from the Lord. 
people in the church are saying, well, you know, I just, that's just too, too narrow. And we've come a long way, so we need to kind of step it up here and give in to some of these things. And so to that end, Isaiah opens this book with a series of sermons. And they are a series of sermons that denounce the sin that's in the nation. He begins with the personal sins of the people. And then he continues with the national sins of the leaders. And at the same time, in the north, the prophets Amos and Hosea are preaching similar messages to the northern kingdom. And so God has his prophets in both places at exactly the same time, preaching exactly the same message. Oddly enough, that's what's going on in our world. The same battles that we fight here in Southern California are being fought in India. They're being fought in South America, Latin America. The Gentile nations around Judah and Israel weren't innocent either. And so he's going to speak into their lives. But as we look at this book, wonderfully interspersed throughout are these, these kind of songs of hope, these chapters where God just says, okay, I've given you the problem. Here's the solution. Your hope is in the Lord. And that's the beauty of all of this because God never leaves us without hope. He may point out a fault or two. He may tell us, look, this needs to change. But then he comes along and he offers his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. And he says, if you'll just simply turn from your wicked ways, I'll heal your land. It's all good. I just want you to spin around and go the other direction. There's a number of chapters, chapter 28 to 35, when you look at it, it's like, man, this just looks hopeless. Israel's going to be, in essence, destroyed. The ten northern tribes are going to be taken captive. They're going to be assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. And most of you know that the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. Do you know why? Because the Samaritans were half Jewish and half Assyrian. That was, those were the people that were assimilated by the Assyrians, the ten northern tribes, one of the ways that the Assyrian Empire conquered lands is they killed all the men, raped all the women, and the children that were born were half Assyrian. That's a pretty good way to get some loyalty to your cause, don't you think? The Assyrians were ruthless. And so Assyria is going to come a series of kings. Actually, three periods of Assyrian history, and they go all the way back to 2000 or so B.C., but when you get to the time that's mentioned here in the book of Isaiah, it kind of begins with Shalamanser the third, and as he comes and through what would be the southern part uh, of Iraq, and ultimately comes across towards uh, what would be the the anvil of the sun, the northern part of the Sinai Desert. Uh, not a way that most people could even travel, but the Assyrians were so mighty that they would allow people to die in front of them, placing goods for the army that would come behind them. I mean, they were just insanely ruthless. Uh, in fact, I just closed, so you can't go see it now, but on loan from the British National Museum were all these wall panels uh, from the various Assyrian kings. Um, Ashurpernal was one of them. Shalamanzer was another. Adonari was another that, that chronicled their destruction of the lands around them. And so finally you get to this guy, Tilglath, 
Pelezer, who the third, who swept into what we would call modern-day Israel today and just basically takes everybody captive. And so Israel is going to be surrounded, in essence, they've got what the remnant, if you will, of the Egyptians to the south of them. They have part of the Assyrians to the east of them. They absolutely have nothing but Assyrians to the north of them. And in fact, Syria today, modern Syria, is actually an abbreviation of Assyria. That's why it's called Syria. That was all their kingdom. And so Isaiah is saying, look, it's going to be fine. So here's this little sliver of land that has the Mediterranean Sea on its western side, and it has its enemies everywhere else. And Isaiah so trusts the Lord, he says, look, it's going to be okay. It looks bad, but it's going to be all right. The basic outline of this is very, very, very straightforward. And so as you start to look at these things, he's just going to deliver these sermons. He's going to talk about the burdens. By the way, you can get these online, so don't bother writing them down. You can just download them from the Internet. Well, if you want to take pictures, then go for it. But it, it's, it, it really just talks about the condemnation of the people. The historical interlude gives a little bit of history. And then the consolation, the comfort that God's going to bring. And that's kind of the story of our life. I have to first recognize that I'm a sinner. Amen? So without me knowing that I'm a sinner, I don't know that I need a Savior. So in a very strange way, the whole book of Isaiah is a microcosm of your salvation experience. You have to understand that there's none righteous, not one. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there isn't one of us who's going to earn your, our own way. It, it doesn't matter how much you feel your future glory is going to be secure in you. It's not secure in you. And then there's usually a little bit of time to where you're kind of like in the middle. It's like, well, you know, I'm not really against God. I'm not really for God, but, you know, who knows? And then finally you come to that place to where God speaks into your life of how great he is how much grace he offers you and offers you his glory to boot. And so this picture, though it will be the children of Israel, is going to be a picture of you as well and me as well. The chief characteristic of this amazing book is really the Messiah. And, and when you look at how Isaiah presents Messiah, it's like no other book. It's, it's no other prophetic book, no other book of the Bible, period, um, really presents the Lord Jesus. We, we see the birth of Christ in chapter 7. We see the ministry of John the Baptist in chapter 40. We, we see the spirit of the Lord coming upon Messiah in chapter 61. We see the nation reject Messiah. And each one of these things is fulfilled in the New Testament. So these are things, they're, they're touchstones where we can say, okay, Isaiah said this, and here's what happened in Luke's gospel. Isaiah said this, and here's what happened in John's gospel. Isaiah said this, here's what Paul said about it in Romans. Isaiah said this about the Gentiles, here's what happened in the book of Acts. Isaiah said this about the Lord's suffering and death, here's what happened in the gospels. Isaiah said this about his resurrection, here's what we know about the resurrection of Jesus in the book of Acts. When we get done, you're going to have 38 at least pieces of information that are extremely specific about one man, one period of time in human history. 
the mathematics of the Messiah is mind-boggling. We'll cover that when we get to Isaiah 52 and 53. Bottom line is, the whole book's about Jesus. The whole book's about Jesus. You, you study the prophetic plan for the world, it's like, wow, that kind of sounds like Jesus. We're going to see that though your sins be as scarlet, we'll get this next time, they'll be made white as snow. Kind of sounds like us, huh? They're going to be as red as crimson, but they're going to be white as wool. We're going to find in chapter 44, I have blotted out your transgressions. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, if you believe in your heart, and God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. The result of that is, if you will confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That comes from Isaiah. We just find out the finished product when we get to the New Testament times. We're gonna see that the Holy One of Israel is a just and righteous God, and yet he forgives our sins. That's mind-boggling to me, that God retains his perfect justice and holiness and yet still forgives my sins. The only way he can do that is through Messiah. He has to offer up his own son. The book of Isaiah presents that picture for us. It's on the basis of these truths that the, the great apostle Peter declared in Acts 10, to Jesus all the prophets witness through his name whoever believes in him shall receive the remission of sin Isaiah asks these questions who will believe a report when you look at the whole picture of it that's why the book of Acts records for us nor is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. The book of Isaiah is about Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for this incredible book and in this fairly lengthy introduction. We pray that you would just speak to us, God, as we move forward through these 66 chapters. Lord, as we see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. God, we pray that you'd fill our heart with confidence in our salvation, that you'd strengthen us, Lord, for the life that we live in this day and time that is obviously wicked, Lord. The world is waxing worse and worse, and your word says in latter days this would be the case. The prophet Isaiah told us these days would come. And so, Lord, we sit here tonight expectant of one day hearing that trumpet sound or to being home with you in an instant in a twinkling of an eye would you just give us tremendous hope fill us with peace in Jesus name amen amen Amen.